0: so you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com squared.
1: What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.
0: Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Coming up, our debate, it's time to ditch the canon of great white men. In recent years, movements to change school curricula have argued that all students at schools and universities should be able to see themselves reflected in the books they read. But others argue that moves to decolonize the curricula and include more authors of colour like Toni Morrison or Wole Soyinka should be included based on the universal value of that work and not the identity of the author. So how do we best go about updating those reading lists that include some of the most well-established classics in literature and academia? Jeffrey Boaki a former English teacher and author of the acclaimed memoir, I Heard What You Said, and journalist Tamiwa Owalade are our guests today to discuss this timely topic. Our chair for this debate is the writer, academic, and broadcaster, Shahida Bari. If you'd like to hear part two of the debate, become a member of Intelligence Squared by heading over to intelligencesquared.com membership, and you can enjoy more bonus content, add free listening, and receive updates of our live events as part of the Intelligence Squared community. This episode was recorded live on the 7th of June, 2023. Let's join Shahida now.
2: Hello and welcome to this online debate on the motion. It's time to ditch the canon of great white men. Um, First things first, I'm going to ask you to make your first vote straight away so that we establish the baseline of our debate and then we'll see if we can change your mind as we proceed. You can vote for or against the motion and the motion again to remind you is it's time to ditch the canon of great white men and if you're unsure, you can vote unsure decided. Um, As you come to your decision, let me fill in some of the parameters of the debate. Uh, You might in recent years have heard a great deal of the term decolonising, decolonising museums, uh, decolonising institutions, uh, in our case today, decolonising the curriculum. Um, Perhaps you can even record your own or recall your own educations here and the degree to which they were, I suspect, uh, like mine, dominated largely by great white men, as it were. Um, and the literature and history and philosophy of an almost entirely European tradition. Now, the premise of our debate Today, if you agree with the motion, is the idea that for too long our schools and universities have excluded people of colour from the canon of great writers. But does it follow that syllabi should change to enable students, whatever their heritage, so that they see themselves reflected in the books that they read? Um, is that in fact feasible? Or does it come at too high a cost? Should Plato and Socrates, Locke and Hume, Dante and Dickens, just some on the roll call of dead white men? Can they be removed from their pedestals to make room for others? But perhaps advocates of decolonizing the curriculum are not proposing to entirely eliminate white men from reading lists. And it might be possible to acknowledge how racism and colonialism have shaped our past by broadening the scope of our education systems. But what about those who oppose the decolonisation of the curriculum? Are they safeguarding a literature that is universally relevant from politically motivated trends? Are they upholding fundamental values about great writing of the past? And perhaps they also welcome names such as Wallace Inca and Toni Morrison, but on the basis that they are simply great writers rather than the happenstance of their ethnicity or identity. So, some complicated issues here to navigate. Where do you stand? Is it time to ditch the canon of great white men? Are you for, against or undecided? Now, just before we head into the debate, let me tell you how things will proceed. In a moment, our two debaters will present their opening speeches, then I'll invite them to debate their ideas politely but rigorously, and we'll take your questions too. The speakers will end the debate with short closing statements, after which I'll invite you to make a final vote, and the result of that will be announced. So with no further ado, let's turn now to our speakers and their opening speeches. Speaking first for the motion, we have Geoffrey Boake. He is an author, broadcaster, educator and journalist with a particular interest in issues of race, masculinity, education and popular culture. He's also taught secondary English for 15 years and is now a senior teaching fellow at the University of Manchester, so especially well qualified for this debate. He's the author of numerous books, the latest being I Heard What You Said, which calls for a revolution in education. Jeffrey. over to you. You have around six or seven minutes.
3: All right, brilliant. Thank you very much. And thank you for that very warm welcome. Listen, let me get straight to it. If you look at the wording of the national curriculum, right, which I checked just now, it's it's on the internet right now. In the aims section, you'll find something that says, the national curriculum provides pupils with an introduction to the essential knowledge they need to be educated citizens. It introduces pupils to the best has been thought and said and helps engender an appreciation of human creativity and achievement sounds good sounds actually almost banal because it's so obvious that's what you want to do with the education system but there's a phrase in there which we have to interrogate the phrase is the best that has been thought and said that didn't come from nowhere that comes from somewhere it actually comes from the victorian era out of which our education system in this country was born. And it's the same system that's kind of been exported across the world, all right? Like this weird idea that you go to school and everyone the same age as you, puts on the same outfit as you, and you move through the system like a conveyor belt, and then you come out the other end and achieve a set of qualifications that allow you to go to the next room. That's a system which is Victorian because it's essentially an industrial model for education. We're talking about a period of industrialization. But that phrase, the best that has been thought and said, it was said by someone called Matthew Arnold, right? He was a poet, a thinker of the Victorian era. And he was also someone that went to a very expensive school. It was Rugby School, about £37,000 per annum, which is a lot of money at any time in history. And he wrote something called Culture and Anarchy after there was a working class kind of um, uprising, trying to get rights for workers. And one of his ideas in his thesis was that culture is the opposite of anarchy. And he saw society being anarchic with these uprisings or protests, whatever you want to call it. And he saw the antithesis of that being culture. So when he talks about the best that is being thought and said, he's talking about a world in which the middle classes, remember, this is the Victorian era, the aspiring middle classes could access a culture that would prevent anarchy. I know I've gone in at the deep end, but this is the wording which still exists in our national curriculum to this day. And it sounds benign. It it actually sounds very optimistic and positive. But the minute you think about it, you realize there's something very subjective taking place. Who gets to decide what is the best that has been thought and said? Who is deciding on the quality of culture that people need to access? Now, when you think about our education system, you have to remember that it's been designed, it's been constructed, and it has design principles at its core. Originally, right, schools in this country were set up for the aspiring middle classes, the sons of aspiring middle classes, to access a world of employment and culture and refinement and sophistication that had been preserved for the upper classes. Remember, social justice as a term was coined in the 19th century, at a time when you had lots of social injustice. So we're talking about an education system that's born of a period of social inequality and inequity, all right? And an education system that's trying to create opportunities for the sons of the aspiring middle classes. This is ideology, all right? And it's linked to class because as i've said the opposite of culture is anarchy and you don't want the working classes to be anarchic so therefore you give them culture what's this got to do with our motion today it's time to ditch the canon of the great white man well this is about dominant ideologies it's actually a conversation about power when i said earlier who gets to decide what is the best that's been thought and said that is 100% 100% leaning into a wider debate about who has social dominance and power. And it's obvious who has social dominance and power. You just have to look at who's been running the country for the past however many hundred years, or who earns the most money, or whose life is free of certain discriminations, prejudices, and biases, and so on. And this is where we get sticky because we're talking about identity politics. And yes, People who are white because of white supremacy, and yes, people who are male because of the patriarchy, and yes, people who are wealthy because of socioeconomic um, inequities run the world. They run the systems that we are all part of. Now, I inhabit these systems, right? Like, you just heard me talking for, very eloquently, my ad in the language of empire. Like, listen to me. I'm assuming you can understand what I'm saying because I've got the arrogance of empire behind me. I speak English. I speak one language fluently, right? When you think about the way the world operates, that's a very arrogant thing. But I'm not berating myself for that. I'm just aware that my Britishness gives me privilege. Of course it does. Like, I've got the good passport that I can just travel the world and go port to port, you know, with uh, 400 years of colonial legacy behind me. I'm also male. That gives me a lot of privilege. I've got male privilege. It means that certain things are expected of me, certain things I'm allowed to do. My voice is listened to in certain spaces. I'm not discriminated against because of my gender. I've got all sorts of other privileges. I'm straight, you know, that's an interesting term straight. Um, I'm able bodied, you know, I'm neurotypical. All these different things that give me power. My racial identity does not give me power because of white supremacy, because of what happened to the continent of Africa in the 1800s. And previously, if you go to transatlantic slavery, and I inhabit a body that feels the effects of racism. When we're talking about these conversations of power and culture, we have to look at this whole arena of identity. And if there is a particular narrative, a particular viewpoint of the world that's tied to a particular set of identity constructs, then some ideologies might fall into play almost accidentally without being challenged. The arts are key in all of this. When we talk about our education system, there's a reason why you study the arts, why literature, um, drama, I mean, why even read novels and plays and poetry? What's the point in that? You can't turn that into money. Easily, all right, but it's because this is how we how we live in culture, and we know that the arts are important. No one should be denied access to the arts. And actually, the best of what has been thought and said, once you get past thinking who's deciding, that's something which everyone deserves. Everyone deserves access to a cultural universe that is expansive and broad. The problem is that when you um, when you're tied to a particular political Worldview, then that subjectivity gets in the way of using the arts for what they're for. Because how can anyone say.
2: If you have a minute left.
3: Cool. How can anyone say that the best that has been thought and said can be dominated by a particular set of identities, male, white, straight, Eurocentric, and so on? There's a gatekeeping that we have in our education system, which we call the canon. The canon is something that can live in individuals. It can change. And actually, the wider the perspectives go, the more subjective we allow the canon to be, the better the arts can become at doing the thing that Matthew Arnold originally wrote about, which is engendering human creativity. So that's my opening gambit. There's a lot more to say. Hopefully, we'll get there. But I'm laying that on the table. Over to you, Shahida, what do you
2: think? (laughs) I, I think a lot i've got, i've already got 15 questions and i'm hoping the audience do too i'm hoping they'll be typing their questions madly into the question box and um, thank you jeffrey for a really opening a really bracing opening speech um uh, but let me introduce tommy War now who i think will speak with equal Brace and Brio. Uh, speaking against the motion, we have wa Owelade. He's a writer and critic and a contributor to The New Statesman. He's written for many publications, including The Times, The Sunday Times, The Financial Times, and The Observer. And his upcoming book is called This Is Not America, Why Black Lives in Britain Matter. Well, over to
4: you. Thank you very much, Jeffrey, and, and thank you, Shaida, for that um, very nice introduction. Um, reading has been, in- has been an integral part of my life since I was a little boy. I don't remember the first book I read by myself. I only remember the outline of the story. A boy was travelling alone through a snow-filled landscape. I found it enchanting, not because I could recognise myself in that boy. I was enchanted because I was transported into another world. At that very moment, I was welcomed into the greatest ever club, that of readers. Reading fiction emancipated me from my narrow and particular circumstances. A London suburb and a family not especially interested in reading anything apart from the Bible into a universal world of culture. I soon graduated into the canon of Western civilization. I once spent the summer holiday as a teenager reading Tolstoy's War and Peace. It was thick and heavy and the font was tiny. It looked like the most intimidating book I'd ever encountered. But I was surprised by just how readable it was. The chapters are very short, and I was hooked by the romance between Natasha Rostova and Prince Andrei Bolkonski. I was also charmed by the struggles of the awkward and naive Pierre Bezukhov. If someone had said to me back then, why are you reading a white and male author instead of somebody who resembles your racial background, I would have been perplexed. I clung back then to an idea of literature as something that can transcend racial and other categories. That was part of the reason I was reading in the very first place. I did not want to be put into a box. I still cling to that ideal today, and this is why I am firmly against the case for decolonizing the canon. This case is straightforward. Throughout history, so the argument goes, the Western canon has centred white and male authors and marginalised everyone else. But we now live in an increasingly diverse society and the rights of underrepresented groups should not only be expressed through the conventional political arena, but also through the study of literature. This is because literature is inherently political. The very framework by which we judge a novel or a play today is informed by the unquestioned biases that reflect a racist, colonialist, and patriarchal past. So we must decenter white male and stale authors. Their overrepresentation in the curriculum does not speak to a society that claims to be tolerant and inclusive. This is why the OCR exam board decided to update its curriculum last year. Out went Philip Larkin, Seamus Feeney, and Wilfred Owen. In came poets from more diverse backgrounds. The viewpoint of the curriculum decolonizers is based on the assumption that poetry written by black poets resonates, for instance, more strongly with black students. Indeed, it is through these very poems that black students would feel included rather than marginalized. But why should a black African student, for instance, necessarily identify with a poem written by a West Indian man or a black American man? Or why in any case should a black African student feel seen by a poem written by somebody with exactly the same racial characteristics? The students might do, but he might not. We should not take this as a given. I think the problem with decolonising the curriculum is not that it promotes diversity. The problem is that it does not promote enough diversity. Filtering literature through a rigidly ideological lens undermines some of the fundamental qualities of any devoted lover of the subject, nuance and curiosity. Many attempts to decolonize the curriculum rely on a very narrow understanding of what constitutes diversity. Take, for example, the case of Seamus Heaney. Why should a poet who grew up in rural Northern Ireland in a Catholic family be seen as embodying the white British establishment? Only ignorance I would argue can lead to such a conclusion, a lack of curiosity in what we mean by whiteness and also ignorance of the oppression of Catholic people in Ireland by the British state. Ultimately though, what matters to those who love Heaney is not his identity, it is his expert manipulation of language. The beauty of great literature is its universal quality and that quality resides not in the identity of a poet, It is in the merit of his or her art. And to those who say artistic merit is unavoidably compromised by politics, you have already acquiesced to a diminished view of literature and the arts. Of course, making a society as anti-racist as possible is a noble aim. And it is true that, all too often in the past, writers from oppressed backgrounds have been marginalised from the canon. But the fact that the study of literature has been used to advance a reactionary agenda in the past should not mean it should be used to advance a progressive agenda today. It should not advance any ideological agenda. This is for two reasons. The first is that it undermines the actual fact of the relationship between writers from marginalized backgrounds and older, whiter authors. And secondly, because it undermines what I think literature should be for, transcending social categories, not reinforcing them emphasizing our universal humanity, not putting us into little silos. Those who support decolonizing the curriculum see the relationship between non-white and white authors only in terms of conflict. They see it as a zero-sum game. Okay. We, we need to dissenter white and male authors, they argue, to empower writers from marginalized communities. But this underestimates the debt that many non-white authors owe to the traditions of Western literature. Writers are always in conversation with each other Zadie Smith is renewing the fiction of Dickens. Derek Walcott is renewing the poetry of Homer. I am against decolonizing the curriculum because I am opposed to ideological dogmatism at the expense of the human riddle, to use a famous line from James Baldwin when he was defending the right to read Shakespeare. I am against decolonizing the curriculum because I don't want to be defined entirely by my race. I am against decolonizing the curriculum because I still cling to that dream I had as a little boy, to see literature as literature, not as anything else. Thank you.
2: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Tomiwa. Um Two magnificent uh, mo- uh, propos- propositions for and against the motion and a lot for us to think about.
0: The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared. And to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and on stage talent. But behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super Super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared. netsuite.com squared.
2: Um, Before we head into the questions from the audience, uh, I'm going to share the results of our first vote from the audience. Um, They've been voting while you've been speaking. Um, uh, I'm building up the tension here, Jeffrey and Tomiwa, in case you can't tell. (laughs) Um, It's a close run thing. Um, So for the first vote, it's time to ditch the canon of great white men. Um, The results are that 41% of our audience agree with the motion that it is time to ditch the canon of great white men. 53% disagree with the motion, and there is a 6% undecided. So there's lots to play for still, I think, um, as we go in to the questions. Um, And I think the audience will be able to see the results on their own screen shortly too. Um, I'm going to remind the audience that they can. Uh, ask questions by typing in their questions in the box under um, their screen at the bottom of their screen, and they can tweet along too. And I'll be posing those questions in a moment. But I, I want to to pick up the the argument, as it were, with the two of you, and 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 pick up some of the provocations and put them to each of you. Um, I wonder, perhaps, we could start with you um jeffrey bearing in mind we've just come from tommy was discussion um tommy while um cited heaney and larkin um and he suggested that the assumption that poetry written by black students would resonate with uh, written by black poets would resonate with black students is an assumption why should that be the case
3: yeah you see what's ironic there is that when we talk about decolonizing the curriculum that's actually coming from a position of default whiteness. And so it happens very badly. What Tommy would describe there is an absolutely superficial and actually quite ignorant and naive approach to fixing a problem which has wider parameters than that. You can't just take the optics of taking a black writer and putting them in the place of white writers and thinking you're doing something. This is actually a little bit deeper than that because What we're talking about is an entire system that's born of white supremacy. I've taught English for 15 years, and I'm telling you right now, one of the most difficult things is to push against the tides of a canon that is constantly telling you and reiterating a particular worldview and a particular superiority that's given to a particular canon, right? Actually, the way it needs to work is the universality of literature, of culture, of art, is something that can be found cross-culture. It can be found pan-globally. But a lot of students, most of us, aren't introduced to these narratives that go beyond a very particular worldview. That's a problem because the universality of the human experience can be found in all sorts of literature. You'll find brilliant examples everywhere. What's deeply ironic to me is that a lot of the writers that are on the canon are actually pushing back against the paradigm. White writers, you know, you talk about William Blake, you talk about the Romantics, you talk about J.B. Priestley, you're talking about these are the texts that I've taught over and over again. They're pushing back against ideas of power. And if you don't push back against ideas of power, then you get a situation like the one we've got now, where some um, writers will get co opted into quite dangerous conversations of nationalism of superiority and that's the thing which means that decolonizing the curriculum, not in the lazy way that you see it happen, not in the optics way, which is why I actually agree with you, Tomiwa, but the idea of pushing back against you know, existing paradigms of power, that's something that needs to happen. And the best way to do that, I think, is to broaden the perspectives of these universal human stories. But that takes engagement, which is something that a lot of teachers struggle with
2: why did you want to respond to that?
4: Yeah, I I I would like to respond by posing a question because um Jeffrey made a lot of very grand grand sounding statements, but it's still not clear to me because you described my point of view as ignorant and superficial. It's no, still not n- clear. Not your point of view. I'm saying that when people
3: decolonize the curriculum in that lazy way of taking sure, okay. a black
4: writer, not okay, your point sure, of view. Sure, 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 yeah, yeah. sure, sure. But because again, I I would not say that I am opposed to including writers from marginalised um, backgrounds um, and making them an essential part of study. Where what my my issue is on what basis? What is the what is the underlying basis upon which we would include one particular writer um, and not another writer? Um, I still cling on to the idea, which which maybe. Uh, perhaps naive, but I don't think so. That the basis should be upon not the identity of the writer, but on the artistic quality of that writer. Um, right. And and I and I would say that um, because it's I think it's it's very easy to present this discussion as a um, as a discussion of on one side there's the progressive side and there's on one on the other side is the traditional side. But many uh, marginalized writers, including many marginalized writers and thinkers um, with avowedly radical political points of views, have benefited greatly from from the canon. Um, so I'm thinking of W.E.B. Du Bois, um, who was 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 very proudly steeped in the traditions of of the Western canon. Who was a big fan of Richard Wagner. Um, he loved Aristotle and Aurelius and Shakespeare. Um, you can't understand the literature yeah. of James Baldwin without understanding the King James Bible, Shakespeare. Right. Um, but, you can't but, understand Tony totally Morrison. Hold, hold,
3: hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Listen to me. I'm that person. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, English degree, first, university, yes. postgrad. I am that person. Sure. I'm steeped in a Western tradition. That sure. canon is what I lived and breathed. It wasn't sure. until my 10th year of teaching that I suddenly realized like a fish out of water, that I've never taught a non-white author in any depth to any of my students, okay. and, I, and I was okay. never taught any, apart from the, the one teacher that introduced me to a little bit of Alice Walker, a mm. little bit of, e, of E.R. B- mm. Braithwaite. So mm. you can actually make it all the way to adulthood mm. and not have the perspective of someone who is not white, mm. not female, um, not male, mm. you know, not straight, mm. not um, able-bodied, you can you can miss all of these perspectives, sure. and that is narrowing. That is
4: disempowering. I've 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 got two things to say to that. One 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 of them is I I would of course include many many black Why writers it and and. So, but but I'm 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 not the person that like I'm I'm I was I was just born less than thirty years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's not, not it's not it's right. not me that decided. I'm but I'm I'm, I'm only Why speaking from happen? my perspective. Yeah, but, but I am asking you to think about it. Why is it yeah, yeah, happening? Yeah, yeah. Well, 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 I I would agree that in the past, writers from marginalized background were marginalized, and that was an ideological reactionary agenda. But I I don't I don't think the solution to that or, or the response to that should be um should be oh let's 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 include. Black and marginalized writers simply because the um, the writers in the past were white. What what I would say is that j- writers like James Baldwin, Toni Morrison, um, Chinua Achebe, um, Wallace Shoyinka should be included in the canon. They they because they, they are. Uh, but but I would say they they should be included not on the basis of their identity, but yeah. on the basis of their art. The but basis me. that they. That? But mate, you know as well as I do.
2: I'm gonna. Sorry. I'm gonna. Pro- I, because I've, Sorry. I've prodded you, Jeffrey, with one of Tom Ewell's propositions. I'm going to prod Tom well with one of your propositions. Please and, do. And, and, please do. So one of the things that Jeffrey cited earlier was, of course, Matthew Arnold. Um, yes. uh, and the, that, that definition of the canon is the best eh. that has been thought and said. Eh. And Jeffrey's question was, well, who gets to decide what that is? I, eh. I put that question to you. Isn't that still a eh. problem? Who gets to decide what the best that has been thought and said is?
4: Yeah, I I, th- I think it's not just one individual, and it shouldn't be clearly one individual. It should obviously be um, a collaborative el- um, effort. It should be wider society rather than just a a, a select, or rather than just like what uh, individuals from one particular minority. Um, but but I still think that what's what's being said, I, I I'm still sceptical of rejecting that as 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 part of the. Ideological project to be more inclusive. I'm still skeptical of saying, well, just because the um, ideal of what's been said and done has been used in the past to marginalize um, communities, therefore, um, we shouldn't have any sense of artistic excellence, any sense of merit. Because I I would say, sorry, sorry, because I, I would say that. That would, be match, that would be condescending and also patronizing to people from marginalized backgrounds saying that, well, it's, it's what's, been, um, what's best, what's, been, um, what's the best things has been said and done for us. But for you guys, we have a different set of standards by which we should judge um, the kind of work you do. I, I find that extremely patronizing and condescending. So All I would right. still cling to that.
3: You keep saying in the past, right now we have social inequity i go into okay. schools day in day out and okay. these children and young yep. people are not being given access to a universality of stories that go out of <laughs> a single narrative they mm-hmm. are not being given access to a global world of culture and literature the universality of story can be found everywhere so this is not in the past and and, and, equity, and what? No, hold, hold on Like, we live in in a society that is not equitable. So you can't just say that, well, there are great writers, they'll end up on the curriculum. You couldn't answer who gets to decide. Look at who gets to decide. This is steeped in ideology. Look at our governments. Look at who's run the country. Look at the links between power, money, and colonialism that set up the very structures of which education is part of. You're honestly telling me that there's something fair going on. This is inequitable. So I could be the next Shakespeare, I'm not but I could be the next Shakespeare. My text will not make it onto the curriculum because of racism and post-colonial ideas that took people like you and me because of the color of our skin and dehumanized for a number of centuries. These are the conversations <laughs> you are really talking you're,
4: about. You're, you're, but but you're, you're saying that your, your text would not make it into the curriculum because of your color of your skin. Yeah. Um, and and I, 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 would, I would say that so that, that 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 is unfortunate, and I am opposed to that.
3: But unfortunate but, but the is issue... a nice way of saying it, man. Like unfortunate. I never read "Things Fall Apart" by Chinua Achibe until I was a fully grown adult. After I left university, someone could have given me that text. I well, well, I, well years okay. Old. Well, your
4: exp- your experience is different from mine then, because I I studied at university. There you go. I did. Well, I I, I did study at university, um, and and I and I did study James Baldwin as well at university. Um, I, I did study. Um, Tori Morrison at university. Yeah. I, I, started, I and 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 because because I, I think there is a kind of of of, of slight miscommunication be, be, between us. You, you you seem to assume that I am happy with a status quo in which um, marginalised writers are not in the curriculum or in the canon. I, I have said repeatedly that I'm 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 not happy with that. But the question is. What should be the basis upon which those writers are included? I have an answer Um, to that question. Go on. I have an answer to that question. Go on. What's what what should be the
3: basis? (laughs) Yeah. The canon lives in individuals. The canon lives in your educators. It's not a fixed pillar. That's the problem here. That is a that's actually a very, very um kind of like traditional way of looking at society that you need these pillars. And if you shake them, everything falls apart so the canon cannot move. And the minute you start removing things, shaking things, you're destabilizing things. The canon lives in me, it lives in you. Your ideas of what are the best that has been thought and said are valid and valuable. And if you were an English teacher or designing a curriculum, what you choose to put on there would be infinitely better than what an organization of people that aren't thinking about it would feel. I feel like educators need to be given the invitation to create a canon which is relational and contextual. And as you said earlier, that beautiful phrase, in conversation with history and society, that's the thing which is missing. So when we talk about, it's time to ditch the canon of great white men, that is a very crude way of saying, it's time to invite new perspectives into this thing we call the canon and the canon needs to be flexible it needs to be subjective it needs to change
2: uh, the final um vote results are in and they are i can see them i wonder if the audience can see them they are super interesting so a reminder that initially the the, the first vote was that 41 percent of our agreed that we should ditch the canon of great white men and 53 percent disagreed with six percent undecided so we were we're veering towards the disagree the final vote of the audience agree that it's time to ditch the canon of great white men. So we've gone from 41 to 59. And uh, 36% disagree. So we've gone from 53% to 36% um, disagree that it's time to ditch the canon of great white men. And an undecided of 5%. So that's i think we've had some swing voting there rather interestingly um thank you so much to our audience um for voting um we're, we're gonna run out of time so i want to give a minute each to our wonderful really inspiring speakers um to give their their closing thoughts um so Tommy, me well, what i'm gonna hand over to you you have about a minute to sum up your position thank you
4: thank you thank thank you shaida and thank you jeffrey for this um so just to sum up, I, I would say that um, Shakespeare, George Eliot, and Charles Dickens can speak to anyone, irrespective of their racial background. And I think the traditions of Western culture belong just as much to Black people as white people. Um, alternatively, and I think related to this as well, I think Richard Wright, Tony Morrison, and James Baldwin can speak to white people as well. Um, there was a famous quote from the writer, Um, So Bello, who who once dismissively asked in the 1980s, who is the Tolstoy of the Zulus? And the American writer Ralph Riley responded by saying, Tolstoy is the Tolstoy of the Zulus. Um, But I think, alternatively, Chinua Achebe is the Chinua Achebe of any community in Europe as well. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Toma. And you, Jeffrey. Uh, your closing thoughts? Yeah, I
3: just want to say that um... It's important to really think about which conversations get missed. Um, empathy is a difficult thing to practice because it often sits in our blind spots. And one of the good things about these very uh, you know, grungy debates that we're having now that can get so polarized and so um, difficult to resolve is that they're trying to have conversations that historically haven't been had. And our stories are where these conversations live. So the more we can widen the scope of perspectives and understand that marginalised perspectives are not marginalised, they're vantage points from which you can see things with greater clarity and from greater distance, you then realise you want to go to those marginalised places to get the better perspective. I need to go to a place of um, trans-centred identity to understand this world of gender binariness, I need to go to a place of not being a traveler myself to understand the discrimination faced by that community and so on and so forth. So ultimately, I just want to kind of say, I really hope that people are sensitive to the conversations that aren't being had and aren't accidentally um, kind of heralding a canon that represents conversations that have been iterated and reiterated in systems that we're all subject to.
2: Thank you so much, Jeffrey Burke and Tomwa Oualade. thank you also to our audience
0: for some really brilliant questions and to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. If you'd like to listen ad-free, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com membership. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay with editing from Tom Hall. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com or tweet us at intelligence2.